Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 215, Hero of War. Before I start, just to remind you that I'm a proud member of the Agora Podcast Network. To find out more, hop over to the website agorapodcastnetwork.com. So, we left off last time with Wolsey beavering away, preparing all the logistics for a French campaign, and Henry close to his personal foray into war. But we did leave with a couple of questions. Who would steer the ship while he was away? This was a question of some importance, because the news from Scotland wasn't brilliant. Now, Henry VII, he thought he'd solved that problem, and maybe just perhaps possibly he could have solved it. When Henry VII's daughter, Margaret, had been married to James IV, the way was possibly clear for a rapprochement between the two nations after a history marked by more than the odd niggle here or there of a rivalry going back even before the Battle of Nectus Mira in 685. For which, see the history of Scotland on the Members Podcast there. And you thought you were going to get through an episode without me mentioning the Members Podcast wrong. Sorry. James IV, as we have mentioned, was a king on a grand scale, whose relaxed and confident style of government had brought more potential for unity between the lowlands and highlands of Scotland for many a year who saw himself as a renaissance prince on a European scale. To play any significant part in European politics was something of a challenge for a Scottish king, they were even further away than England, even smaller and poorer than England. Yet to a degree, James did manage it. He'd invested in the Scottish navy, in artillery, and in bringing the modern techniques of warfare to a Scottish army, which was now armed with the modern weapons and tactics of the pike. So... When Lancaster Herald delivered Henry's declaration of war to Louis in 1513, James had a difficult decision to make. He could stick with England, and effectively that meant peace. 
there were many arguments in favour of such an approach. War with England meant war against the Holy Roman Emperor. It meant war against the Pope. War against the Empire was a problem, not because an enraged Maximilian would send a stream of grumpy Swiss pikemen all the way to storm Castle Rock, but because Flanders and its trade was every bit as important to Scotland as it was to England. And, of course, there was that marriage and the Treaty of Perpetual Peace that had gone along with it. He'd have to tell his wife he was going to war with her brother. And it also meant throwing over the old alliance, the relationship with France, which had been a cornerstone in Scotland's foreign relationship for centuries now, and that would hurt. And Louis, desperate for friends, was hammering at the diplomatic gates of Scotland, offering and indeed delivering money and gifts. Many Scotsmen actually served in Louis's army anyway, a bit like those contingents that had joined John Lebel in the Hundred Years' War of their own accord to fight against the English. War with England was always popular in Scotland. The English were no more popular in Scotland in 1513 than they are in 2017. And there were niggles, border conflicts and grievances. And then, to be honest, there was the big one. James saw himself as a warrior king. If he was going to invade somewhere and prove it, then really England was the only available target. A few historians have had something of a hack at the English for failing to manage this situation very well, and it has to be said there was a general lack of effort to keep Scotland sweet. Border conflicts which could have been resolved with a bit of goodwill were not. The English Parliament took this opportunity to assert their sovereignty over Scotland, which could be described as insensitive and slightly poor timing and an embassy that went to Scotland from England really offered them nothing. The general view seemed to be that the alliance with England was self-evidently a great thing to have, which again is a tad arrogant. And so James, a bit unsurprisingly, decided for France, and he began to gather his army. It was Queen Catherine, actually, who responded to this. She wrote to the English ambassador at the papal court, and before long, with a bit of prompting, James IV found himself excommunicated. Henry then also had a decision to make. In the words of The Clash, in a song which is clearly not their only good song, should he stay or should he go? There wasn't really any doubt Henry was going to ignore Scotland and go, it has to be said. But while he was away, it would have to be a regent and a council that would have the job of guarding the back door. And that regent was to be Catherine of Aragon. At her side would be the ageing Thomas Howard, Earl of Surrey. Quite honestly, the campaign in France hadn't started that well. Edward Howard, the naval leader, had started his campaign against Brittany with a much-enhanced fleet, which would be one of Henry's more positive legacies. The work to enhance the fleet had just started, but already there were eight new ships in Howard's fleet, and he set out to avenge the death of his pal Thomas Knivet. Sadly, he found that the French fleet was less inclined to have a glorious naval battle, and they sat in the port of Brest quite comfy, thank you very much. Now, the obvious solution would have been a blockade, it would tick the most important box of keeping the French ships away from the English invasion fleet, which was, after all, the main point. But nobody won glory and poems by sitting on a blockade. No bard would sing about the glorious vengeance visited on the French by making them lie around for a few weeks. So, with all the daring do of the reckless minion, Howard went straight at him, charging into the harbour under the sight of the French guns. His men, it has to be said, were nowhere near as enthusiastic. Nonetheless... Howard's ship managed to come alongside a French ship, despite the guns, and Howard leapt over into the ship with sword flashing and blood raging in his ears. When he looked round, he saw that most of his men hadn't joined him, and indeed they actually cast off, leaving him lonely and in a spot of bother. 
Before he could say, darn it, Howard was dead and his body was thrown overboard. As starts to campaigns go, it could not be described as a flyer. But anyway, the game was on. In June, splendidly dressed with the jewel of St George in his crown, Henry embraced his wife at Dover Castle before setting off on his flagship, the Great Harry Imperial, over to Calais. It was a massive army, by historical standards, that arrived in France. 30,000 strong, with 12,000 archers and a combination of Englishmen and mercenaries, including 4,000 of the Landsnecht pikemen, considered the best in Europe, maybe second to the Swiss. Once in Calais, Henry made the most of it. There was three weeks of processions and jousts and feasts, while his army, decked in green and white, assembled all around him. Also constantly at his side was the king's almoner, everywhere up and down, organising, cajoling, threatening. All the arrangements were Wolsey's responsibility. Obviously, organising the supply of 30,000 men is far from a cakewalk. But just to put it all into perspective, we might consider the king's own entourage on campaign. So, put away from your mind the thought of a king in a tent suffering the rain and mud with his men in a dirty, grubby campaign. The king had a house of timber, which was carried in 14 wagons, with 14 fine horses with all their trappings, a whole range of garments for every occasion, with his personal bodyguard of spears of 200 men. He also had a most prized possession, which was his own toilet, or stool place, as it was called. Actually, Henry wasn't alone in this luxury. All the great men of the realm felt themselves entitled to their creature comforts along the way. The Earl of Northumberland, for example, brought with him a feather bed and a mattress for his pavilion with silk hangings, a carriage with seven horses, two chariots with eight horses each, and a household of chamberlain, steward, ushers, master of the horse, carvers, and so on, and so on, and so forth. Seriously, it all sounds a lot more like glam camping than a war. The highest honour of command went to Henry's good old mate, Charles Brandon. It's a while since we have met Charles. He's worked his way through two marriages now and is a widower. But he'd come into possession of a young ward called Elizabeth Grey. She was quite a catch, an orphan, daughter of Viscount Lyle. So Brandon had seized his chance and as one of his first guardianly duties... He'd betrothed her. She was eight at the time. However, Charles still had an eye out for any other chances that might come his way. No point getting too attached, just in case a better offer came along. But anyway, for the moment, he was committed to little Elizabeth. He'd also been made the king's second-in-command, the commander of the vanguard. And so Brandon set out for the first objective, the town of Therouanne. At some point on the march, Maximilian would no doubt join them at the head of this magnificent army that Henry had paid for, and together they would lay waste to France. Two things did greet Henry when he joined the siege at Therouanne. One was indeed the Emperor Maximilian. Without an army, of course. Maximilian had basically trousered the cash, employed a small contingent, and then covered it all up by placing himself grandly under Henry's command. There was nothing Henry could do. Meanwhile, Neither the Pope nor Ferdinand had any intention of messing about in France, since Louis himself had better things to do and his eyes were firmly on the massive French invasion of northern Italy. The other thing that greeted Henry was a messenger from James IV. On August 11th, the Scottish Herald delivered his master's defiance to be sent away with a flea in his ear. Recommend me to your master 
and tell him that if he be so hardy to invade my realm or cause to enter one foot of my ground, I shall make him weary of his part as ever a man that began any such business. The paper envoy told him that his whole nation would be anathemized, but the die was cast. In Scotland, since the 21st of July, a large army was being assembled, maybe as many as 30,000 again. All the Scottish regions responded enthusiastically to this chance to stick it to the Saxon, including the Mackay of Stranavere, who marched his clansmen all the way from Sutherland to fight for the king. After the defiance had been issued, the army set off, with an impressive artillery train their master's pride and joy. Before the end of August, the castles of northeastern England had fallen to this artillery, Norham Castle, Walkworth, Ford and Ettel, leaving only Berwick outstanding. To the south, Surrey was already in the north with his sons Edmund and Thomas gathering an army, while Catherine shipped artillery to Newcastle. On the 27th of August, as regent, Catherine ordered the property to be seized of all Scotsmen living in England and for Thomas Lovell to raise more men in the Midlands. Meanwhile, right down in the south, Catherine herself was to command a third English army. Maybe it was occasions like this that built a bond between Catherine and the English people that would cause Henry and Anne Boleyn a lot of pain and anguish in a while. She had learned English now. She was actively leading the nation. She led an army north of London to Buckingham while she waited for news of the Scottish invasion. The game was most definitely a foot. Pharaoh Anne fought hard, and in the middle of the siege came the one significant engagement of the whole campaign. The French decided to try and draw the English away and sent two companies of knights towards the English camp. They were accidentally intercepted, the French panicked and legged it in a mad dash of galloping horses. This skirmish came to be bigged up as the glorious Battle of the Spurs, so called because that seemed to be the only equipment the French used, so keen they were to get away. Henry wasn't even there. But we should not mock too much. There was a handsome collection of prisoners and it was, after all, a win. Just to add to the joy, Therouan, battered by English artillery, surrendered and was raised to the ground, obliterated. And so, on to the major objective of the campaign, the city of Tournai. And this would be something of a prize. At 80,000 inhabitants, it was bigger than London. Tournai managed to hold out for only eight days. Louis would have been disappointed. It was unnerved by the treatment handed out to Therouan and it was intimidated by the English artillery. Henry was beside himself with joy. On the 24th of September, he entered the city in all his glory to be followed by revels, tournaments, feasts. Henry then handed the keys of the city to Charles Brandon and headed off home to England to bask in his glory and deal with the outcome of the Scottish invasion. In truth, he would have known the outcome by the time he set off. On the 9th of September, the two armies, Scotland and England, were in sight of each other, 30,000 Scots and 26,000 Englishmen. James had occupied a superb site at Flodden Edge, his artillery dominating the countryside between him and Surrey's forces. To climb the hill in the teeth of the artillery would have been madness, so Surrey swung round the Scots to flank them and by so doing evaded the worst effects of the Scottish artillery. Nonetheless, they were still there at the foot of the hill with the Scots up at the top. The ensuing battle has been described as the last medieval battle fought on English soil, and much of this has to do with James himself. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One less orthodox explanation for what followed is that James was wearing his Dujanta 200 superchromatic peril-sensitive sunglasses and was therefore unable to see the danger that he was in. The more traditional interpretation was that James saw himself as a great chivalric leader. Not for him the modern approach of generals placing themselves carefully in the rear to direct operations. Nope, James, he would be in the thick of it. Against him stood English archers, again the last major battle where English archers played a significant part, and in fact their time was already over. They had little impact on the Scottish pikemen, their attack blunted by the heavily armoured men at the front of the Scottish squares. James was feeling brave, confident and glorious. The first Scottish attack on the English right had resulted in success with the English under Edmund Howard scattered. Standing now against James under Surrey were arranged English billmen, using the hooked bill much shorter than the modern pike, which in the hands of the Swiss had swept the battlefields of Europe. And so James abandoned the hill, and placing himself and his captains at the head of a square, advanced down the hill to grind the hated Sassanacs into the mud of Northumberland. It was a vicious fight in the mud, so wet and churned up was the ground that many of the Scots took their shoes off to give them better grip. As they approached the English, their much longer pikes would surely break the English billmen with their shorter out-of-date billhooks. It was toast time for the Sassanacs. But as they moved down the hill, the steepness and the wet played a crucial part because it broke the formations of the Scottish pike squares. And this was critical. Suddenly the English billmen were no longer facing an unbroken bristling and lethal hedge of deadly iron. They were facing individual men holding a very long and very heavy pole against whom the billhook was much easier to use. It was a disastrous transformation. Over three hours of mud and blood and push of pike, the Scots were utterly destroyed. It wasn't easy. The English themselves suffered 1,500 casualties. But 10,000 or more Scots died. Among those 10,000 were an archbishop, a bishop and two abbots, though surely they should have known better. There were also 12 earls, and fourteen lords who lay dead. And within a few yards of the Earl of Surrey's own banner also died a king, James IV. James's decision to fight with his men rather than stay aloft and direct proceedings from the rear, his lust for chivalric glory, had cost him his life and deprived his country of almost an entire political generation. News travelled fast back to Scotland and transformed into personal tragedies. Lord Glams had lost three sons at the battle. The Laird of Garth Clone and his son from Galloway had both died and would never return to their family. Slowly, survivors began to arrive home, such as the standard bearer Black John, who told how he'd been captured but had hidden the blue and white silk of his banner into his clothes. But the immediate problem was who to rule in Scotland. James's heir was currently still inside his queen, Margaret. Margaret was maybe the obvious choice of regent, but she had two drawbacks. She was a woman, and that was, I'm sorry to say, a bad thing at the time. This is not my opinion, you understand. That's just the way it was back in those dark and unenlightened days. Secondly, and far, far worse than this, she was English. Ah, yuck! 
Pitui, Pitui. Also, it had to be said that Margaret, while she talked a good game publicly in Scotland about being a good Scot, she was a little suspect. Here's an example of her writing to her brother Henry VIII. I am so extended that I doubt that poverty shall cause me to consent to some of their minds, which I shall never do without your counsel, as long as I have a groat to spend. Eventually, Margaret, after the birth of her son and new king, James V, sealed her own fate by rather wildly marrying the Earl of Angus, a Douglas. She didn't bother to tell anyone, which was considered more than bad form for a queen and potential regent. As it happens, her descendant Mary Queen of Scots would inherit the marry-in-haste-repent-at-leisure tendency. Douglas was a known Anglophile. The Douglas who had attacked the English at Poitiers would have turned in his grave. No one wanted a known Anglophile in Scotland, and so it would be the pro-French Duke of Albany who became regent, and a chance maybe of a more peaceful future between England and Scotland was lost. Catherine of Aragon, meanwhile, wrote an unsurprisingly happy letter to Hubby. Really, it was proving a most excellent year for the happy couple. On his way home, Henry visited the town of Lille. He was there to visit one Margaret of Austria, Margaret was the daughter of Maximilian, the Holy Roman Emperor, and she was the regent of the Low Countries on behalf of the young Charles of Castile. I suspect I am repeating myself, but Charles is the grandson of Ferdinand of Aragon and therefore nephew to Catherine of Aragon. He is a golden youth because he is heir to the most extraordinary collection of territories. He is also heir to one of the most impressive chins the world has yet to see. Charles is a sort of ultimate outcome of the planned breeding programme that was medieval marriage politics, a bit like the Shadow Hararat of the Dune series, if my memory serves me correctly, which I guess you've never read. You have in this, incidentally, broadly been making the right decision, and if anyone suggests that you pick up the film from somewhere, just say no. Firmly, maybe with an edge of contempt. Anyway, I digress, away from June. Where was I? Ah yes, breeding programme. So, Charles was heir to the Low Countries. He was heir to the family lands of the Habsburgs in the form of Maximilian. He was heir to Castile and to Aragon, finally uniting the crowns of Spain when he got there. And of course, all those islands and Naples. So he really was going to be not short of a bob or two when he came into his inheritance. And of course, in marriage terms, I mean, just how much more eligible could you be if you could get past the chin? Margaret herself was a widow, and a very eligible one too, and into her court then walked two young bloods, two men who were not by nature shy and retiring, or inclined to self-deprecation. Here was Henry, King of England, and his mate Charles Brandon. You might not have noticed, but I've been trying to weave into my narrative the lives of two supplementary players, Charles Brandon and Henry's sister Mary, which is why I tell you this trivial incident. Essentially, as these two victorious young men were led, swaggering by their codpieces towards Margaret's court, Henry was metaphorically sticking his elbows into his pal and egging him on to flirt and court this most eligible widow, Margaret of Austria. Neither one of them, I suspect, had Charles's eight-year-old betrothed ward in mind as they so swaggered little Elizabeth Grey was well forgotten. And so Charles was very happy to oblige. Throughout the stay of banquets and jousts, flirting away, and in the process managing to get his hands on Margaret's ring, and rather failing to notice that this was not making Margaret happy. Margaret was eventually forced to write to Henry to insist that Charles returned the thing. The ring was too well known, the rumours were flying. 
Henry had to apologise for letting things go too far. Poor old Brandon. He'd have to settle for his ward. Shucks. Poor rabbit. However, the much more significant thing was the announcement of an engagement. And what an engagement this was. It was between that gilded 13-year-old youth Charles, heir to pretty much everything, and the Princess Mary, Henry's sister. Princess Mary was widely reported as the most beautiful princess in Europe. Everyone was delighted, though she was a little older than Charles, but only by four years. But Charles was a rather doer young man, and is supposed to have remarked when he heard that he'd wanted a wife, not a mother. Which is a little hard, but putting that to one side, this was, as you can understand, I think, really quite a coup for England. So just for a moment to speak up for Henry's achievements here in France, because it is easy to denigrate and minimise them, dismiss them as one minor skirmish and a rather exposed town, one while the King of France was distracted by the Italian war. He had won something significant, if intangible. He'd won reputation. The French gendarme who had fled at the Battle of the Spurs had been fated as the best heavy cavalry in Europe and had already won glory in Italy. And now they were known as, quote, the armoured hares, which is rude. Henry had shown he was to be taken seriously. He could and would inflict pain. And anyway, as far as Henry was concerned, this was just the first step. Next year, there would be more campaigns. This time, his allies would actually get off their backsides and do something significant, and he would thrust a dagger into the very heart of the evil French Empire. So, you know, let's have some respect here. Back home, Henry was so happy, I suspect, a little wee may have come out. He was able to return as the conquering hero. He was able to honour and promote the victors in the finest chivalric manner. So Charles Brandon, still treasuring that ring and hoping he would dump his ward in favour of a greater prize, was made a Duke of Suffolk. Now then, there's a thing. The lowly Brandons in three generations had made it to the top of the greasy pole, very much like their predecessors as Duke of Suffolk, actually, the de la Poules. In those days, people did not forget, of course. The smell of the low-born still, despite all this time, still stuck to the guy, and there were mutterings. Virgil wrote, for example, that, quote, Many people considered it very surprising that Charles should be so honoured as to be made a duke. The great Erasmus, intellectual giant, was also something of a gossip. He wrote to a friend, Gossip has it that Maximilian's daughter, Margaret, is to marry that new duke whom the king recently turned from a stable boy into a nobleman. Oof, burn. Ooh, burn. Next, Thomas Howard, Earl of Surrey and Victor of Flodden was called forward, and the Howards were back where they belonged, reinstated as Dukes of Norfolk. The other bloke to gather the spoils of victory was Wolsey. Wolsey had had a good war. His organisation had been quite superb. Everything had essentially worked as it should do. And he'd been at the king's right hand whenever needed, fixing whatever needed fixing. And now came the rewards. He was made Bishop of Tournai. In early 1514, Henry twisted Pope Leo's arm and forced him to accept Wolsey as the new Bishop of Lincoln. You'll notice, FYI, incidentally, that Pope Julius has dropped off his perch and so we have a new Pope now. His name is Leo. More significant in a funny kind of way, is that this is a good moment to announce that Wolsey now held the nebulous and indeed non-existent title of Chief Minister. I mean, really, there is no such thing. But nonetheless, Wolsey is at the King's side from now on. And if you wanted something, then more and more it was Wolsey you would go to, not the King. 
The king had vacated the Palace of Westminster by this time because it had been damaged by fire and he was down the river at Greenwich. So at least once a week, Wolsey would set off down the Thames in a gilded barge with a liveried retinue and sail down the river to St Paul's. From there, he would land and be met by horses to convey the party through the city. This was to avoid going through London Bridge. The bridge was traditionally hideously dangerous to row under. The piers compressed the water into what were described as rapids, so you avoided it. Once safely below the bridge, then Wolsey and his glorious retinue would once more climb onto fresh gilded barges and thus to meet the king. The other indicator of Wolsey's success is the tone of his former mentor, Bishop Fox. Letters from Fox to Wolsey had gone from orders to slightly exasperated demands for information to companionable requests for advice addressed to Brother Master Almoner. And now that journey had been fully travelled. Now letters from Fox to Wolsey were addressed as, quote, My most singular lord. Wolsey was triumphant. Fox was actually probably also perfectly content with his lower status. He was increasingly troubled by the morality of a churchman involved in politics and war and was losing his sight. Like a man of the corporate commercial world for 30 years, he wanted out to the green fields of podcasting or to his flock and diocese in Richard Fox's case. It has to be said that all this satisfaction and celebration had come at quite a price. War has never come cheap. And as we've mentioned, Henry had a very liberal attitude to money at every level anyway. Military expenses between 1511 and 1513 now stood at £922,000. The English would spend another 230000 fortifying Tournai as well. But for the moment, let's say that Henry has invested close to a million quid into his European reputation. His father's treasure was gone. As it happens, starry-eyed Parliament was to vote him 160,000 quid, but from now waging war would be much, much more difficult. Nonetheless, everything appeared to be at the young king and queen's feet. There was glory, there was success. There would be renewed success next year because there'd be a glorious invasion and defeat of France. Meanwhile, Catherine and Henry were getting on like a house on fire. Catherine had proved an admirable regent and ground the face of the Scot into the northern mud. Plus, Catherine was pregnant again. The sun shone. Find out what happens next, then, in the next episode of the Tudor Soap Opera. Will the sun continue to shine on Harry and Cathy, or will the clouds gather to rain on their parade? That will be in two weeks' time, though. Next week, we have the joy of a guest episode by Ed McWatt. We're going back in time to the exit of the Romans from Britain. Brexit, you might say. Also, Aaron just emailed me as I was recording, and oh dear, what a mess I've made. In episode 213, I said Charles VIII had conquered Milan. Although Charles did indeed wander along the length of Italy, he didn't apparently conquer Milan. That was Louis XII. I also said Pope Julius allied against Charles. He did not. He was, at the time, just a humble cardinal. He fed the court of his enemy, the Borgia Pope Alexander VI, to advise Charles on his invasion. Sorry, a bit rubbish. Never mind, onward. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, thank you to all my members. You've saved my life. I'm eternally grateful. Enjoy Ed and Rexit next week, and see you in a fortnight.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.